Um, you know, there was a basketball game yesterday. I don't know if anybody knows that or not. There were several. And uh, there was a particular basketball game that I was interested in. I didn't see all of it, but I saw bits and pieces of it. And I did see the final few minutes in which uh, my team lost to another team. <clears throat> yeah, K-U-P-U. I am for Kansas University until they play University of Texas. I cannot give up my birthright state, okay? Uh, I wasn't born in Kansas, but I got here as quick as I could. And I'm for K-State and KU and WSU, but when they play Texas, I must stay true to my roots, okay? I bleed orange, not OU orange, okay? But the Texas color of orange, and uh, it's just the way it is. When you're born in Texas, you're just a Texan. Uh, you can take the Texan out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the Texan. Just kind of how it is. Everybody else is jealous because Texas is the greatest state in the union, by the way. I just, just thought that would create a little stir today. But uh, anyway, so we did lose to KU yesterday, and I'm in mourning. Uh, I'm surprised that no one, I've been in hiding. That's why no one is, has uh, been able to harass me today. So in light of the loss yesterday, I'm going to pick on KU, all right? I've got a joke about Kansas University graduates. How many of you admit that you're a KU graduate? Very few, that's what I thought. There was a, a man who graduated, a young boy who graduated from college, and he went to Kansas State University. He enrolled in school, and he did his four years, and KU at that time had a, a competency exam that you had to pass in order to graduate, and uh, so he took the test, and he failed miserably. Well, he wasn't going to be deterred by that, so he took it the second year, and he studied all year, and he took the test, and he failed again. That wasn't going to deter him, so he studied the third year and took it and failed. Then a fourth year, he studied and took it and failed, and so on, until 25 years have passed. Every year, he studied as hard as he could, and he failed. Finally, the trustees and the board of directors and the, you know, the, the outstanding professors got together, and they wanted this guy to graduate, so they decided they would have one very special test for this one very special student. They would ask him one simple question, and if he answered that question correctly, he would be allowed to graduate. Well, they talked to him about it, and he was pretty excited about it, and they informed him that this question would be so easy that even a fourth grader can answer the question. And so he was ready. He sent out invitations to all those that he had met in the 29 years of being at Kansas State University. And everyone who knew him loved him and liked him. He just couldn't pass the test. They all responded to the RSVP, we want to come and we want to watch you take the test. There were so many students that accepted the invitation, they had to put him in the KU University Stadium. I've been there. It's large. It filled the, the stadium that was there. They all came, thousands of them, to watch this miraculous moment. Well, the day arrived and everyone got in their seat. The stadium was filled to capacity. There was a little podium and 
a little two speakers, you know, there in the center of the football field, and the faculty and the trustees and the board of directors were all there. The SACS people who, you know, accredit schools were there, make sure it was conducted fairly and rightly, and so everyone was there for that wonderful moment, and so finally he steps to the one microphone, the other professor steps to the other microphone, and he said, are you ready? He said, I'm ready. So, well, here's the question. If you answer it correctly, we will allow you to graduate. The crowd went into an uproar. You know. And so he said, I'm ready. Now, here's the question. Answer this one question will allow you to graduate. What is three plus two? And you could hear, oh, in the, you know, in the stadium. He took his stance and he looked to the ground, and he looked to the professor, he looked to the graduates, he said, now, let me, let me make, it, make this clear. If I answer this question correctly, I'll get to graduate, right? He said, that's correct. He said, okay. He said, if I understand the question correctly, you've asked me, what is three plus two? The professor said, that's correct. He said, all right. The question is, what is three plus two? Three plus two equals five. And instantly, the crowd of spectators, the thousands of KU graduates and all of the past who had known this man, all shouted out in rap encouragement, give him another chance, give him another chance, give him another chance. I set all that up for that, didn't I? Here's the point. How many of you know that 3 plus 2 equals 5, okay? One of these days. Christ is going to return, and he will set himself up as the judge, the jury, and the executioner, and there will be no second chances. Time as we know it will come to an end. Every one of us will stand before this great white throne, judgment seat of Christ, and we will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords who came not only to be our Savior to die on a cross that had now has been raised and elevated to a position of being the judge, the jury, and the executioner, and he is going to then hold us accountable for the lives that we have lived in this life while we were in this life, and there will be no more second chances. Once life is over and we are now in this moment, all chances have ceased. And there will be some who will stand in that great group of people down there who will find themselves distant and disconnected from Christ because they have not placed their faith and trust in him as their savior and committed to him the leadership and lordship of their lives. And at that moment, they are going to recognize their fate. They are going to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, who he claimed that he said he was. They have either rejected him or refused to accept him. And now it is time for them to give an account of their lives. And some of them, Jesus says to us, will want to step forward and present themselves before Jesus now as the judge, no longer the Savior, but now the judge, and they will want to plead their case. And no matter how much pleading they do, there are no more second chances because the verdict has now been finalized, it has been sealed, and the sentence will be executed. And Jesus is calling his disciples early on in his teaching ministry in the Sermon on the Mount while he gets to the close. He's calling them to avoid a false profession. He has already told them to watch out for false prophets who are going to falsely prophesy and proclaim a false truth, a false gospel, a false way. 
He's already told them that narrow is the gate and narrow is the way, but very few find it. Wide is the gate and wide is the way that many find that way. And now he's saying, I, only not, I not only want you to avoid false prophets, but I want you now to avoid false professions. I want you to make sure that you know exactly who you have professed your faith and trust in and that you profess that faith correctly. He's calling for us to make a true confession, a true profession of faith in Christ. So as we take a look at these verses in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, beginning with verse 21, I want us to look at three aspects about this call to avoid a false profession. First of all, I want us to look at the explanation of a false profession, the exposure of a false profession, and the effect of a false profession. So let's take the first, in Jesus' words, the explanation of a false profession. Notice his words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We see that Jesus is wanting to clearly lay out for his hearers or his listeners and for us who are now the recipients of the record of the Sermon on the Mount so we can have a clear-cut explanation of what a false profession is. Is. And he says, it begins the text, that a false profession begins with a profession that is anything but authentic. It is a profession without authenticity. In other words, there are some that are claiming to profess him as Savior and Lord, but in reality, they are not authentically professing that. Notice he says in the text, not everyone, not everyone. Here, Jesus is sort of dividing the crowd that he's addressing, and he's dividing those of us who are now recipients of the letter of the gospel account of Matthew as we read it. He's making two very different distinctions. There were two trees. There were two prophets. Now there are two types of people, and he's dividing now the crowd that is there that is gathered to listen to this Sermon on the Mount. He said there are there are two groups here. Now, now, in all reality, there's more than two groups. I mean, there are those who are there who are the critics, who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees who probably have made their way there to hear this Sermon on the Mount, to pick it apart and to dissect it and to be critical and, and to, to rip it apart. There are those who, who are probably in the crowd who are not yet disciples, who have no desire to be disciples, but they're there for the show. There are probably those who are wanting to be disciples. They're desirous of being disciples. They're there for information, and they're considering a decision, but they haven't made it yet. There are those who have made a decision, but yet in that decision, they have not truly confessed or professed faith in Christ. They have made a false profession, and those are the ones that those he's sort of singling out. And then he's putting aside those over here, the few who've entered the narrow gate and who accepted the narrow way, the few that are there are the ones that have made a true confession. Not everyone, he says, who are in the crowd have made the right kind of profession. And it is safe to conclude in this crowd right here, more than likely, there are some of us who have not made the right profession, the right confession. Not everyone who says to me, not everyone who claims Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lord, not everyone who says that is, in fact, a disciple. Wake up. Not everyone. And Jesus is dividing the two groups. He said, not everyone who says to me, 
To whom? To me. Who are they making this proclamation to? Not to other people. I mean, it'd be one thing to make a proclamation to other people trying to sort of masquerade and pretend that you're a true disciple. I mean, it's one thing to come to life group and pretend to be a Christ follower. It's another thing to sit in a worship service and sing the songs and and look interested and maybe even take notes and, and project to others that I'm a false disciple trying to, you know, through games and masquerade and hypocrisy, you know, cause others to, to think maybe or to confess to others, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Jesus. But to say it before Christ? I mean, what are they thinking? Not everyone who says to me. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. He is, he is all-knowing. There is nothing that he doesn't see. There is nothing that we think that he doesn't know. There is nothing that we don't feel that he is not aware of. There is no place that we can go that he is not with us. He knows everything. He is all-knowing. And the all-knowing Jesus who is about to declare that his Father, God, sitting on the throne is his Father. God is his Father. And therefore, as the Son of God, he, like God, knows everything. These people have the audacity then to claim to him that they have trusted him and that he's their Lord. He's saying, you think I can't discern who is and who isn't? How foolish is that? Of you, And how ridiculous is that on your part to make a claim that you know and you should know that I know who is and who isn't. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord. They say it twice, not once. The reason they say it twice is to enforce, Lord, Lord, the dedication and the desire and the devotion that they have toward Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord. Lord, they are calling him twice. Look how devoted, look how dedicated we are to you. You're not only Lord, but you're Lord, Lord. You are Lord of our lives. It's, it's more than just being the master. It is a proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And we have called you now Lord as Christ, the son of the living God. You are Lord of our lives. They are professing to Jesus that he is Lord, that They are dependent upon him, and they are submissive to him. He is their master, their ruler, their CEO, and their Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, notice, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Notice in the words here the determined fate of those who falsely profess faith in Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's a false profession. It is a profession without authenticity. And because it is not a genuine, authentic profession, they will be excluded from the kingdom of God, not only in this life, but in the afterlife. They will be excluded. But notice it says then in the text, but the one who does the will of my Father but the one who does the will of my Father. This is practice without authority. You have the profession without authenticity, but now here's the practice without authority. Notice in the text, he's about to describe to us what a true disciple, what a true follower is. However, in light of what I have just said, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is an authentic disciple. He describes the who. 
Notice it's the one who does. The one who does. One. And Jesus is helping us understand that it's a personal relationship, one-on-one with Jesus. Coming to faith in Jesus is not a group decision. It's not a family decision. It's a one-on-one relationship with Jesus where he becomes your intimate, personal Savior and Lord. It's a one-on-one thing. How many of you are studying the, the gospel coalitions, uh, the gospel, not called, the gospel project? You talked about election today. And there's some that talk about a group election. I don't believe scripture teaches that. It's a personal call. It's a personal decision. It's a one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He singled you out. He called you out individually to a personal love relationship. And the people who are saved are those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. But notice he said, but the one who has a relationship with me, who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. You cannot have submission without salvation. I want that to sink in a minute. You cannot have submission without salvation. Salvation precedes submission. The new heart, the new life, and the new birth precedes obedience. You cannot submit to the Lordship of Christ without first trusting Jesus as your Savior and having a new birth experience. We saw it last week. The only way to produce good fruit is to be drafted and connected to Christ as the vine. You cannot in and of yourself produce any fruit that is worth anything unless you're first grafted, connected to Jesus in salvation. Because without him, we can do some things. We can do nothing. Obedience doesn't precede salvation, and obedience is not in lieu of salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in that it is not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God. And there are some who take this passage and try to convince us that unless you're obedient, you're not saved. And to some, I would argue, you know, in some ways you're right, but in many ways you're wrong. Because they would say that we're saved by being obedient. Well, what did James talk about? Well, show me your faith without works, blah, blah, blah. I know all that discussion. If you don't know that, read James. I don't have time to go there. But I'm saying this, that submission begins with salvation. For once, when I get saved, Jesus is saying, you recognize, notice, let's go to the text. All right, let's go to Jesus' words himself in Matthew chapter 7. Let's make this point. I really want to make this point. Matthew 7. Let's go back to where we were last week. Some of you were not here. And some of you slept through what we were talking about last week. And so uh, because you've slept since then, you may have forgotten. But I want you to notice what happens here. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who came to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. How would you recognize them by their fruit? By the lives that they live. That's the fruit. We talked about it last week. Can a bad tree produce good fruit? No. Why? Because it doesn't have the new nature of Christ. 
You cannot have good works without first having Christ. Only a a person who has a bad nature produces bad fruit. A person who doesn't have the nature of Christ cannot yield good fruit. That's what Jesus says. In spite of all of their effort and all their attempts, that which they think and try to be good in doesn't and never will measure up. And Jesus is saying, now let me tell you something. There may be a, pro- a profession, but that profession isn't authentic, and that practice is without the authority or the submission of salvation, and you can't submit until you're saved. And Jesus is helping us understand that. Jesus is very clear on that one point. The explanation of those of us who are genuine disciples is that there will be good fruit. Those of us who are not Genuine disciples, no matter how hard we try, cannot produce good fruit, only bad fruit. So therefore, a new nature, a new heart with a new mind and a new life. And I'm convinced that that's why there are so many people who profess Jesus as their Lord, but they can't live the life. No matter how hard they try, they can't live it because in and of their own effort, they can't succeed. And they get frustrated and disturbed and disappointed and disillusioned and go into depression and they fall out by the wayside because what Jesus has asked me to live is impossible. Well, it is in your own strength. But with the newness that comes through a relationship with Christ of an intimate personal relationship while we are grafted into the vine, didn't he say that we would bear fruit? Because he, through us, will then result and produce within us good fruit. Well, that's the explanation. Let's look at the exposure of false profession. The exposure of false profession. One of these days, this false profession is going to be exposed. It's going to be revealed. It's going to be made known. Now, while on the outside, on the surface, we can sort of, as we look at false prophets, know who they are by their fruit, you got to be really, really careful because we can't always see the heart. You know what I'm saying? I had a poster when I was in a student pastor decades ago, where, where it was a sheepdog, and he had hair over his eyes, and you couldn't see his eyes, and a caption at the bottom of the poster that was in my office said, I always see better with my heart. Because sometimes when we try to evaluate someone's fruit or someone's life with human physical eyes, we often have a tendency to evaluate incorrectly. So be careful when you sit in judgment of someone's fruit and determine they're not saved by the fruit that you've inspected. Because we all, like the prodigal son from time to time, have a tendency to fall into sin and to drift away from the Father and live lives that look degenerate when the whole time we're still connected to the Father because the prodigal son never lost his identity to the Father even though he was living in sin. So be careful, for we've all had seasons in our lives in which we have reflected anything but a spiritual walk with Christ. Right? Haven't we all done that? There should be a resounding amen. Come on, hypocrites. We've all fallen and slipped. But there's an exposure here that that is a genuine exposure because it is an exposure from Christ himself. It is Jesus himself who looks, who evaluates, and who determines. And Jesus never misses the mark. He never determines something is false when it's right or something that is false when it is true. Jesus is perfect in all of his judgment. 
And here we see Jesus describing then his judgment in that he is going to expose those who are falsely professing faith in Jesus. Notice what he says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? On that day, notice there's going to come a time and a moment when time as we know it will cease and the great judgment of Christ will begin. On that day, there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of accountability. There is a day in which every single one of us here will stand before Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and give an answer to our salvation and an answer or response into that which he has entrusted into our, into our care. Have we been investors of what he has wisely entrusted to us in the area of resources? First of all, for those of us who are in Christ, that's, that's, that's settled it. We're in Christ. But we'll have to answer then for the living trust that he's given us because we're stewards of not what belongs to us, but as, as now that he's our Lord, it all belongs to him. So now I'm a steward of what belongs to him, and I'm going to be accountable for that stewardship. But here he's not talking about the judgment that's going to happen before believers, but he's talking about the judgment or the exposure of unbelievers, those who have made a false profession on that day, the great white throne judgment day. Many, many will stand in a large crowd. That word many is a word that basically means a multitude, a very large gathering of people. They will stand in a large crowd. And as they stand in this large crowd, because remember, wide is the gate and wide is the way, and many are those who travel by it. And he says, there will be many. On that day, many will say to me, Why are they going to say what they're going to say? They're going to say on that day to me. They're going to stand before Christ on Judgment Day, and they're going to try to substantiate their faith. In other words, they're going to want to stand before Jesus, and they're going to want to make a rebuttal. They're going to want to present their case. They're going to to want to make a defense. Jesus, I'm down in this crowd of unbelievers, but I'm really a believer. I'm really one of yours. I'm really a disciple. And they're going to want to plead their case. And Jesus is well aware of that in advance. He said there are some who are going to try to substantiate their worth in that we're not worthy to be down here. We're worthy to be in that great cloud of witnesses of those who have claimed you as their Savior and made you the Lord of their life. They're going to substantiate their case. How are they going to do that? Well, notice the text. Lord, Lord. Notice, Notice the proclamation. We, we proclaimed you to be Lord while we lived on the earth. We proclaimed you to be Lord. We proclaimed you to be the, the, the one that was born in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes on Christmas. We, we proclaimed you at Christmas. We proclaimed you in the praise and worship at Emmanuel Baptist Church. We proclaim you to be the Son of God. We proclaim you to be the Lord devoted and dedicated to you. We proclaimed you to be Lord. But wait a minute, their profession was not authentic. It was false. What they said was not true. And so yet, even though they proclaimed him to be Lord, he wasn't really Lord. They were really not dependent upon him. They were not really submissive to him because they had not genuinely been saved. They had not been a part of the elect. They have not been called. They have not received Jesus. So even though they sat through all the messages and all the life groups and took all the notes and tried to implement all the principles and precepts of how to live 
this life or your best life now or the greater life to come or whatever, even though they tried to implement all that in 15 ways to have a great marriage and 20 ways how to be a great dad, they implement all that. They, they tried to make him Lord, but it, it never became reality. Why? Because there was no salvation, yet they proclaimed him Lord. Jesus, we proclaimed you Lord while on earth. We, we said you were the Son of God. We, we, we were dedicated, devoted. We gave and we served. We called you Lord. We proclaimed you Lord. And yet Matthew chapter 8, I want you to go to Matthew 8 real quick. I want to make this point, and I want to make it pretty strongly, actually. Because in Matthew 8, just the next chapter, I want you to notice something that happens. Matthew chapter 8, 28. Notice what happens. Jesus is encountering some demons. And in this encounter of demons, he is... uh, He's about to be exposed for who he really is. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. These are demon-possessed men. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us? Oh, Son of God, what are these demons proclaiming? That Jesus is the Son of God. James said that even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Demons know who Christ is. They know his identity. They know he's the Son of God. You see, just to say, I know that you're the Son of God, and I know that you're Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean that you are of Jesus. For even the demons believe, and they tremble. So, a proclamation that you are Lord doesn't necessarily mean much at all, does it? Just if it's a profession, without regeneration, and without a new birth. Notice then three things in their substantiation of their case. Now, in these three things that we're about to read, I want you to notice that all three of these things are in the form of a question. And as they present this question to Jesus, they're expecting or anticipating Jesus to say, yes, you're right. I've made a mistake. You are one of mine. That's, that's, that's the audacity of these people. They are presenting their case before Jesus, who is is all-knowing, who knows their genuine condition, as if as they are going to persuade him to agree with him that they are his. So they're they're asking three questions now, and as they're asking, they're expecting a yes. And secondly, I want you to notice as we read these things that there is a phrase that is repeated each and every time: in your name. Now, in the original language, in your name comes first. In your name, we prophesied. In your name, we did mighty works. In your name, in your name. And and what they're trying to say is that we did it in your name because we did it with your authority. So therefore, if we did these things with your authority and with your power, then therefore, we are genuinely, authentically professing faith in you. That's their disclaimer. So let's look at at their substantiation. First, we prophesied in your name. Did we not prophesy in your name? A prophecy is simply someone who declares truth that comes from God. God reveals truth to this prophet. They then 
proclaim the truth of God. This is spiritual insight, spiritual truth, spiritual knowledge. Did we not proclaim? They prophesied in his name. Secondly, they participated in spiritual battle. Notice, did we not cast out demons? They involved, they were involved in spiritual warfare. They came against the satanic forces, the demonic forces that were enslaving people and possibly even setting people free from captivity, from bondage, from, from oppression, from suppression from the enemy. They, they, they were able to confront in a powerful way, overtake by force this, these demonic spirits and set people free. They participated in spiritual warfare. And thirdly, they performed great works. In your name, didn't we do mighty works? These are miraculous, supernatural works that, that, that are beyond human capability in which they were able to do, and others would go, wow, that's amazing. And so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. A couple of verses, a couple of chapters over. Matthew 13. We have, we have a tendency, I think, if, if, to expose people sometimes. We have a tendency, I think, if we're not careful, to set ourselves up as the judges, the jury, and the executioner. And this is the reason why I want us to be very, very careful, because we, all, we don't always see clearly. Notice he put another parable before them in verse 24, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a, it, it may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his, his, his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Verse 27, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and to gather them? Do you want us to clear the field and get rid of the weeds so that the only thing left is the good stuff? He said to them, no, at least in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. What's the matter? If you did it yourself, you're going to wind up making sure that there are going to be some casualties to your weeding out. It's safe to say that in the Civil War, sometimes there were more, uh, more guys shot their own than they did the enemy. That's what he's saying here. If you start aiming at the enemy, you're going to shoot your own because you, you don't see too clearly. Notice he says in verse 30, let both grow together until when? Until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers. Not you, not us, not we, but I will tell the reapers. We're not the judges, the jury, and the executioner. He is, and I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into the barn. There is a coming judgment. And Jesus is the one who's going to set himself up at the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Uh, it's interesting then to see that 2 Thessalonians 2. Turn there, 2 Thessalonians 2. You know, it's striking to me that there are, there are some who will wonder how did they, how were they able to prophesy and how were they able to cast out demons and how were they able to do miraculous things? If it's not in the power of Christ, then by whose power is it? Well, in the end times, it's another commercial for my class, in the end times, the spirit of the Antichrist is going to begin to rise. 
And not only will the spirit of the Antichrist begin to rise, there's one called the Antichrist who himself is also going to come on the scene. And notice Paul's description of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning with verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy Report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let everyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And, notice it said, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist. The man doomed for destruction. The end time is not going to come until the Antichrist, the one who's going to rise up and he's going to declare himself the Christ. He's going to declare himself Jesus. How are they going to buy into that? How is he going to be able to deceive many? Notice, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up as God in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Sound ridiculous? You know, there was a Messiah complex just a couple of years ago by a man who won an election that really freaked me out. Verse 6, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. (laughs) Notice that. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, the Antichrist is already here. They're already performing incredible miracles. They're already producing these mighty works. They are doing all of these miraculous supernatural things. It's already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. In other words, there's someone holding back the Antichrist from just taking over the world. And who is that? It's God. And what's the person that he uses to do back? Hold back the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to talk about that, but under my class and we'll learn about that. Verse 8. And then the lawless one, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Verse 9. Notice this though. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of who? Well, the work of Satan displayed, notice how it's displayed, in all kinds of counterfeit, what? Miracles, signs, and wonders. If the Antichrist can come with prophetic voices and proclamations, if the Antichrist can come displaying mighty, miraculous works as to deceive even the elect with doctrines of demons, how is that possible? Because they're going to see, they're going to look at him, they're going to evaluate what he's done and say, man, the reason he did this is because God's hand is on him. And it's not God, it's the work of Satan and the power of Satan that is on him or them. And that's why they're able to do these things. These people are under a a deception, a self-deception, believing that they did these things in the power of Christ, when in reality they did them in the power of Satan. What they prophesied didn't come from God. It came from the devil himself and doctrines of demons. The casting out of the spirits of demons was, was, was not really from God. 
the miraculous things that they did did not really come from God. They came from the power and the influence of Satan. That's why Jesus said it's important for us to be very, very, and I believe that it's not long when we're going to see this one individual going to rise up and is going to declare himself to be God because he's going to be able to do many of these things that the scriptures indicate the Antichrist will do. And it's not until then, until Christ is going to return. So here we have the exposure. Jesus is saying, if you didn't do it, all these things, you, you never knew me. And so therefore, the power at work in you was not my power. I'm convinced he's saying to them, it was demonic power. You were self-deceived. Now, what is the effect of this false profession? Let's close with this. What is the effect of the false profession? Notice he says, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The effect. There's going to be an impact. There's going to be a consequence. There's going to be an end result. These people are going to be standing before Christ. They're uh, they're going to declare their case. They're going to present their their innocence. They're going to reveal, hopefully, in such a way that, that Christ will change his mind. Yeah, you truly were authentic because look at all the things you did. And yet, notice the effect of all that they have done. Christ will respond with his own profession. What's his response? And then, after... Hearing you plead your case, and after weighing all the evidence, and then I will declare to them. I will then make my own declaration. I am the judge, the jury, and the executioner who sees the validity, the authenticity, and the truth of your proclamation. And because I am the one who sees it, I will respond, and in my response, I will renounce your claim that you are not truly my disciples. Even though you have proclaimed that I am the Son of God, even though you have cast out demons, even though you have done mighty works in my name, I never knew you. He refuses their their relationship. Notice in the text, the refusal. I never knew you. I, Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of kings, Son of God, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I, Jesus, never. That word never means not ever. It means not in any way or in any time. He never knew them. Now, it would be ridiculous for to think that he never knew who they were or knew their name. Because he knew who they were and he knew their name because he's the Son of God. He's all-knowing, so he knows about them, but he doesn't know them personally. There's not an intimate, connected love relationship with him. They have not been connected through salvation. He did not know them. I never knew you. I never had an intimate, personal relationship with you. And because of that, depart from me. That word depart is a harsh word. It means remove yourself from here to over there. Depart. Leave. You're not going to gain admittance into the kingdom. You're not going to be allowed into heaven. You are not going to be saved from hell. He reveals the reason why. The reason for that is because of their depravity. Notice he says, you workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. They are 
they are yielding a fruit of disobedience rather than obedience. Why? Because even though they're doing all these good things, it's for all the wrong reasons. One last passage in Revelation 20. Go there. We'll close with this. Honestly, Revelation 20, beginning with verse 11. Here we have what is described in the scriptures as the great white throne judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment that comes at the end. After the millennial reign of Christ, you've got the tribulation, you've got the millennial reign of Christ where he sits a thousand years on the throne, and then you have the great white throne judgment, and this is the judgment that ends all judgments. Notice the revelation of John, the writer of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the setting. Then I saw a great white throne, and him, Jesus, who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place was found for them to hide. These people are going to be there. They're going to find that Jesus is, in fact, God. They're going to face Jesus himself as the judge. They're going to feel this incredible fear, and they will find themselves in this whole sea of of. of, of friends of Satan and self and, and, and religion and all of those things, and all of these people would be there. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. He saw the dead, great and small, those who were without Christ, who didn't have the new life, the, the great and the small, the mighty politicians and the kings and the lords and the rulers and those that were in high positions and those that were in low positions. I saw the, the great and the small standing before the phone, throne, and the books were opened. Then the, book of, then the book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to that which they had been done. And the sea gave up the dead whom were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were with them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus, the judge, gavel in his hand, is going to open up first the book of the law. And he's going to read from the book of the law the standards and the requirements for salvation. He's going to present the law. This is what the word of God says, that you must do and must have, must possess in order to be saved. And then he's going to open another book called the book of, of the Lamb, in which all of the names of those who have truly placed their faith and trust in Jesus have been written in the Lamb's blood, in the book of life. And he will read from those names. And the reason he's reading from those names is that he knows that all of those are in that great cloud of witness up here. And he knows that they're there. But I'm convinced as he's reading it, he's reading it almost hoping in his heart that maybe there's just one person down there in that, in that sea of lost lives down there and all these many, many people who maybe, maybe somebody missed the mark or came through the wrong way or, or whatever, just maybe just hoping. He knows he hasn't made a mistake, but he's hoping that maybe there's someone down there because he doesn't want those to perish. He doesn't want them to be eternally destined to hell. That's, that's not his desire, people. He's not that kind of God. And he's reading from the book of the Lamb of Life, and he's reading those names, hoping that maybe someone said, that's me, and they are going to be able to come out. But he knows it's not true. Then he reads from the book of Lost Lives. 
in which all of the names and all the deeds of those who disobeyed the law are recorded. And one by one they will stand, presented before the judge, guilty for their sin against God. And he will judge them. Who's going to be down there in that great cloud, that great sea of lost people? Who's going to be there? Well, I'm convinced that the, the, the reprobates will be there. <coughs> Those are the ones that have just defied, rejected, and rebelled. They hated Christ. They hated the church. They were the reprobates. They were the rebellious. They were the, the ones who ate, drank, and were, were, were just lived life any way they wanted to and did whatever they wanted to, whoever they wanted to. There was no boundaries, no limitations. They entered the wide gate, and they lived the right way, and they're just, they're just, they were just reprobates. Not only will the reprobates be there, but I'm convinced the self-righteous will be there. Those are the ones who somehow thought that if I live this life, if I can do this and I can do that and I can give this and I can serve that, then therefore, <coughs> like these that have, have presented their case before Jesus, they're going to say, but, but Lord, we, we professed you and Lord, we, we cast out demons and Lord, we, we praised you in, in church and Lord, we gave to your work and we did mighty works and we did all these things. They're the self-righteous because you see they're doing those things in order to gain access to heaven and yet he's going to say, I never knew you, depart from me. So not only the reprobates and self-righteous, but I'm convinced the procrastinators will be there. Those are the ones who thought they had plenty of time. Had plenty of time. Jesus tells us in his largest paraphrase of what happens in the end times. And in the last couple of books of Matthew, says there'll be two in the field. One will be left and one will be snatched. In the twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, he's going to come. And I'm convinced there are some down there. So, you know, if I just had another second, I would have made the decision to trust you, Lord. I would have placed my life in your hands and committed you to be my Savior and, and followed you as my Lord. I just need another second. He said, the time is up, man, that you've, you've known about this. I've been calling you by name and calling you by name, and you have, you have yet to respond and to answer. You've procrastinated in, in my call of you. You've not made it. And I'm convinced the church members will be there. There'll be some church members down there. God, I, I was a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church. My name was on the roll. Why don't you check again and make sure I, I surely couldn't have been on the roll at Emmanuel and not been on your roll. Is that possible? Of course it is. But I'm convinced also there will be the false prophets and the false disciples. The false prophets will know that they're down there because they know they're false. But the false disciples who bought into the false prophets, their message, believed it to be true when it was false and staked their lives on it, have now discovered and found out that what they put their faith and trust in, in that message was wrong. And now they find themselves in a sea of lost lives about to be condemned for all eternity. Christ is calling us to avoid a false profession, not only for us as individuals, but for us as we go out. Am I being deceived? Have I made a decision? Have I considered the consequences? What decision has God placed upon my heart today, and what am I sensing in regard to his call, to his election, my decision and my relationship with Christ? I'm convinced that there are some who will say, you know, I was a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and I thought that was enough. It's not. 
We're not saved in and of ourselves. We are saved by grace through faith. And that is not of ourselves, but it is the work of the Spirit of Christ within us. And if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day. Do not procrastinate. Do not delay. Do not put it on hold because we're only guaranteed right here, right now, today. We're not guaranteed it tomorrow. And if you don't know him today as your personal Lord and Savior, today is the day he is calling, inviting you to say yes, that intimate, personal love relationship with him. In a moment, our pastor will be here, and we invite you to come. Just step out from where you are. I know it's a long way down here. But let us celebrate your new birth and your new life today. We invite you to come. Present yourself before him and trust him as your Savior and Lord. Maybe at another time, another place, you've made that decision, but you've never publicly confessed him. What's holding you back? Why not? Today is the day, and now is the moment to come. Maybe you know that you're saved, but you're not really serving the way that you should. And this is the place that Christ wants you to serve in this body and this membership so that we might take the message out to the lost world of Wichita and around the world. We invite you to come. Be a part of what God is doing here in us and through us. Be a part of the family. But for most of us in here who I would say are disciples, one of these days we're going to stand accountable. Sure, we've got the salvation thing down. But how about the trust, the accountability of what he's endowed and entrusted to us? Are we being faithful stewards of what he's entrusted to us? Well, one day, we too, the house of God, will be accountable unto him. And he's going to ask us, what did you do with what I entrusted to I hope that he's not only Lord in salvation, but he's Lord of all. Because he's not, he's not Lord of all. I'm convinced he's not. What decision has he placed upon your heart?